Welcome everyone again to this episode of Bread and Butter Emergency Medicine. That's right, the show has a title. I'm joined here with Dr. Wright. Today to talk about shortness of breath. Thank you again for joining us. Of course. We look forward to hearing some of your thoughts about this chief complaint. Um, so just to begin, in the setting of a patient who comes in with a chief complaint of shortness of breath, you're just starting your shift. What are your initial thoughts when you see that complaint? EMS, family, nurses, whoever it is is rolling that patient by your uh, computer as you watch them go by. What are some initial questions you can think of to ask the first responders that you speak to? Uh, if I see the first responders go by, I usually try and actually follow them into the room and just uh, just chat very uh, informally with whoever happens to arrive with the patient, be it okay. family members or EMS, to try and just figure out what prompted them to call the squad today, what was different about today uh, that made them come to the hospital or the emergency department. Um, if, if they're coming in a more uh, relaxed sort of pace, perhaps from the front triage desk, mm-hmm. then I might take a moment to, to just open their chart and pass through their medical record slightly or briefly. Uh, to see if they've got a history of asthma or COPD or heart failure or something that'll, that'll put me along the right path. Mm, okay. um, but barring that, if they come in by squad, usually I'll just uh, get up and walk in the room and ask them what's happening and if they've had this happen to them in the past. So you find that that's usually a good indicator if it's not if it's a more typical problem, I guess you'd say, if it's something yes. they've experienced before. That yes, can lead absolutely. You. And I, I find that most patients, a lot of patients have a very good idea as to what's wrong with them and what caused it. Obviously, we need to go back and confirm or deny. Mm-hmm. But uh, they usually have an idea as to what's happening to them. And if they've had it happen to them in the past, then that's the best place to start. Are there any diagnoses you think about in shortness of breath that you consider each time? Uh, I guess in a sense of a, a can't-miss type of diagnosis that you'd want to be concerned about. Uh, there, there are several, I think. I, I like to sort of sort out my shortness of breath patients uh, kind of in the classic emergency medicine, ABC kind of format, mm-hmm. airway breathing circulation. Okay. Airway usually is the most critical because they have everyone has to have an airway. Uh, or they're, right. not gonna, they're not going to do well during your visit. So if you can uh, if you can get past the initial airway abnormalities, such as an obstructed airway mm, or okay. an injured airway or something along those lines, and move into the breathing categories, then you're really talking about B and C, breathing and or circulation, so okay. heart and lungs. Okay. So if you can figure if the patient's had a long history of heart problems, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, or lung problems secondarily, uh, then you can you can move right into the diagnostic categories for each of those. So if they're definitely a heart patient, they're coming in with shortness of breath, then it's up to you to to, to rule out those can't miss diagnoses of the heart mm-hmm. uh, first off. So history of heart failure, history of uh, just acute coronary syndrome with uh, myocardial infarction presenting with shortness of breath in the past, okay. uh, those type of things. Um, there are those sort of issues that kind of ride the line between both. Uh, pulmonary embolism being one of those, and that's certainly something that you can't miss. Gotcha. Uh, and you can kind of throw that into either your B or C category, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how the patient describes them. Gotcha. When thinking of those can't miss, and I and I think in the setting of, you, you laid a good groundwork of starting from the top, if you're thinking airway yeah. and kind of moving your way down, mm-hmm. what are some indications that you find just on your initial impression looking at the patient that make you concerned something, something scary might be going on, be it with airway obstruction or something with breathing or circulation? Is there anything you found that reliably can tell you, like, gosh, I better pay you? really close attention to this patient. Actually, you can, if you back up one step from even that question that you mm-hmm. just asked, you, it, it, there, I remember reading a study long ago that said that the most important sign that you can see in a patient as, as to tell you whether they are sick or not sick is their respiratory status. Mm-hmm. So we as attendings, of course, like to just stand in the middle of the pod and not actually go near a patient. <laughs> uh, and, and that's actually not a bad idea to start with with most patients with a, with a complaint of shortness of breath. You can generally tell from quite a distance 
several things about a, a short of breath patient as to, and, and that can categorize them in your mind as to how sick they are. Gotcha. Um, do they have uh, a greatly increased work of breathing? Do they have a greatly increased uh, rate of breathing? Uh, they have a greatly increased depth of breathing. Mm-hmm. Is there some sort of an unusual respiratory pattern? Uh, I'm thinking now of like a flail chest or some pattern mm, okay. um, uh, that might indicate an acid base abnormality, like chain Stokes respirations or something. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these things you can see from a distance before you even even uh, arrive at the patient's bed uh, bedside. So I, I find it's 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 very helpful just to stand and watch mm-hmm. for just a moment. Give it 20 seconds before you actually approach the patient and try and engage them in a conversation. Gotcha. I, I agree with you. I think that can be very telling. I mean, in my limited experience, the ones, uh, patients that I have seen that have been very sick, I think fit with that study you had read, the tachypnea, fast breathing, deep breathing is always kind of a scarier thing to me. There's sure any is. number of things that can indicate someone being ill. That's one that I think has correlated pretty seriously with some bad outcomes. I think you're, you're definitely correct. And, and sometimes I've noticed that as an attending, if, I, if we're in the SRU and I'm just sitting at the, sitting at the sink, staring at the patient, you can glean an awful lot of information out of that mm-hmm. without listening to them, without talking to them, uh, just sort of uh, watching the evaluation as it, as it develops. And so a lot of times you can actually even arrive at a diagnosis just based on the respiratory pattern. Interesting. Yeah, so certainly something to consider. Now, having had that chance, your first impression, you've been able to speak to first responders, family, who be it, that were around at the time that the symptoms began. You mentioned kind of looking through someone's chart briefly, if, if, assuming they don't look sick as, as we're hoping they don't. Um, are there any kind of history points from either the chart or from the patient themselves that you find particularly helpful with this chief complaint? Sure. Uh, first, you're going to look at the vital signs, obviously, and that's mm-hmm. going to give you an indication. If there's a fever there, then I'll put you down a different diagnostic algorithm. And if there's not, uh, are they tachycardic to go along with their respiratory distress? Do they just have a feeling of shortness of breath, or are they actually demonstrating it by having an increased respiratory rate? Mm, okay. uh, if they have a respiratory rate of 26, then we don't see that person very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the respiratory rate is 16 and they're short and they're and they're complaining of shortness of breath, that might mean might mean something else. Um, so certainly you're going to look at the vital signs first, then flip open the chart. I think to past medical history, mm-hmm. and I like to go into the actual past medical history visits because there's diagnosis codes uh, yeah. which come up in a single list, so you can very easily see if the patient's been there multiple times for the same complaint, mm-hmm. such as asthma or CHF or whatnot. And it can mm-hmm. it can uh, you don't want to anchor on that certainly, but it can give you an indication of where to start your questioning of the patient. And so I go go there, and then uh, if I do find they've got a history that uh, of a particular illness to where there will be typical diagnostic tests, mm-hmm. then I'll flip to that section mm-hmm. next. So for instance, if they have a history of of uh, CHF, I might flip open the cardiology panel and uh, see if they've had a recent echo. Echocardiography or a recent cardiac cath or mm-hmm. recent stress test or okay. something like that. Yeah, well, I think certainly pertinent information going into the room or after the fact when you're talking with consultants or things of that matter to have that consolidation of information, I think mm-hmm. can really expedite your, your uh, initial impression with the patient for sure. Absolutely. Um, I agree with you, though, in the sense, too, to try not to anchor in that setting as well. I think it can become very easy to get into a pattern of, you know, oh, it's COPD, COPD over and over. Um, albeit rare, if there is the other occasion, I think it's a good point that you bring up to take into consideration anything else that may be going on at the same time. In the physical exam for shortness of breath, I mean, you've mentioned there are some differential diagnosis points to make, and it's broad. There's any number of things that can be going on, and I think you bring up a good point that the initial history can really narrow that focus. Regardless of that, are there any physical examination tips or tricks, things that you have found have been helpful for any number of these diagnoses that you have to necessarily either remind yourself to do or that you do frequently? Uh, not, not really. It's mm-hmm. really the, just the obvious things uh, that, that I sort of concentrate on with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, first of all, speak to the patient. And if they can speak back in full sentences, and that's a very good sign. If mm-hmm. they can't, then, then you want to think in your mind, can they not speak back to me because of 
their current uh, respiratory issue or cannot speak back from some other underlying issue, like, for instance, if they had an adult stroke and therefore they're, they, uh, they, they can't speak from that standpoint. That can get you a, a good A evaluation. Mm-hmm. Moving then into B, you're going to obviously listen to their lungs and you're going right. to listen to their heart. Um, and I think beyond that, there isn't a lot that you're going to glean, I don't think, from, from physical exam findings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're going to get more uh, from history, historical mm-hmm. features of their case, uh, than you are from the actual physical exam. Mm-hmm. There are certain things that you might find if you're very uh, fortunate. You might get a pericardial rub. Mm-hmm. Those are pretty rare. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I've heard one Exactly. You know, one time. I, I may have heard two or three in the course of a 25-year career. Gotcha. So those are, yeah. those are pretty rare. So to try and rely your diagnostic criteria of a pericardial effusion based on that, you're hearing a rub, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're going to miss more than you're going to find. Well, we've got some other tools nowadays, I think, exactly. that too. Exactly the case. So, uh, so give it a good listen, pay attention, try and make it as quiet a, a room as you can, mm-hmm. uh, and then just sort of run through a slight... A list in your mind while your stethoscope's up against the patient's chest. Am I hearing crackles? Am I hearing a rub? Mm-hmm. Uh, am I hearing uh, coarse breath sounds? Am I hearing wheezing? What are you actually hearing? And, and then move on and figure gotcha. out what you're going to do next. If you're considering possible differential diagnoses, among which pneumonia or other infectious ideologies kind of can be high on the list depending on the presentation, do you find that your physical exam of auscultation is reliable in that setting? Or do you find yourself that even if they sound like they have clear lungs, if the picture fits, you're going to get imaging to take a look? I think that's absolutely the case. I gotcha. think the physical, physical exam is is not what we think it is. I think mm-hmm. even in, in, the, in the very best of settings, which the emergency department is not, mm-hmm. your physical exam is still not going to give you enough information or as good of information as you can get from simple diagnostic tests that we get on people every day, such mm-hmm. as chest x-ray, EKG. Right. Uh, you're going you're gonna to require those two studies out of just about everyone that comes through. Mm-hmm. Um, barring the case of the, the young, healthy asthmatic who tells you my asthma is acting up and they have a physical exam findings <laughs> to, you know, to corroborate that story, that person probably doesn't need a chest x-ray and EKG, mm-hmm. but the majority of patients with undifferentiated chest pain are going to need both of those studies. And the chest x-ray is probably going to give you more information better information, more reproducible information than mm-hmm. your physical exam. When it, I'm glad it's not just me. I mean, that's kind of the way I've been practicing recently in residency as well. I mean, often, uh, of course, we'll auscultate the lungs, but I find that, you know, I can have a not necessarily huge, but a pretty significant pneumonia that ultimately I didn't really pick up much on the physical exam that was suggestive of that. It's yes. kind of been my pattern. I mean, in that same setting, it's a relatively easy test to get, and like you say, objective and reproducible to be able to monitor as well. Oh, so true. I, I think you can, you'll even find I, I used to, I was as you are sort of surprised that my physical exam was what I felt so poor when I showed up at residency, <laughs> but you can actually go back to the same patient after you have the x-ray and you know where the pneumonia is and mm-hmm. try and find it. And I still find it sometimes not very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that's good to know. I mean, ultimately in the setting of if you're starting out in the emergency department new, kind of figuring out how this works with the undifferentiated patient and time is of the essence in a lot of these cases when you're carrying multiple patients at once and knowing that you don't necessarily have to go hunting and searching for several minutes to try to find that crackle or that row that you were looking for, um, knowing that you can rely on some imaging studies to help with that can be a good way to expedite, uh, their, expedite the investigation as well. Absolutely. Now, in that setting, like we've mentioned before, there's a lot of different things that could be going on with shortness of breath. And all of that being said, the history oftentimes is very telling of what can be done. We've mentioned a lot in our discussion thus far, asthma, COPD. What is your initial kind of approach to therapy in these patients if they've got a bronchospastic uh, cause of their shortness of breath that you suspect on history and exam? 
That's a, that's a great question. I think the first thing in your mind is to make sure that what you're hearing is uh, true bronchospasm and not what we refer to as cardiac asthma. So mm, okay. remember that just because it wheezes doesn't mean that it's bronchospastic. But nevertheless, let's say you've sorted out in your mind that you think this is a true bronchospastic illness, mm-hmm. such as asthma, for instance. Uh, if I'm going to start treating that patient, then the mainstay is going to be use bronchodilators uh, in, in, in that regard. Uh, and you're going to start that therapy off upon arrival. Mm-hmm. But to back up, actually... The first thing you're going to want to make sure is to make sure that their oxygenation level is, is, mm-hmm. is where okay. you want it to be, I yeah. think. And you have to treat the oxygen no matter what you think the rest of their acid-base status is because lack of oxygen obviously is going to cause damage mm-hmm. more quickly than having too much carbon dioxide floating around the system. So start them on oxygen if they need it and then start uh, bronchodilators uh, as quickly as you can. You can, And I think something that people forget sometimes is that you can administer those in more than one manner. You mm-hmm. can go uh, topically, certainly, with an inhaled uh, bronchodilator, but you can also go parenterally with something uh, subcutaneous or IV mm, okay. um, if need be, if the patient's truly that bad, mm-hmm. uh, that bad off. You're going to move quite quickly then to, I think, steroids, which can be uh, parenterally administered or orally administered if they're able to swallow. Mm-hmm. Uh, tablets, that's not going to give you an immediate benefit, of course, but six to eight hours later, the patient's going to feel those benefits. Other methods of smooth muscle relaxation, like magnesium, mm-hmm. can certainly come to the fore. Those have, have definite benefit in the uh, moderate to severe asthmatic attack. If it's a more routine case of somebody who's just out of their medications and has a very mild exacerbation, then those haven't shown to have been of great benefit. But gotcha. in the more sick patient, then uh, you can administer those as well. Well, you brought up a good point. I think kind of the elephant in the room that I had forgotten to address in the setting of, well, what if someone's hypoxic? in the setting of shortness of breath. I mean, we had mentioned before looking at the vitals, and that goes without saying, if they have a very low oxygen saturation, that would be something that you should be drawing your attention to. Is there a particular number in hypoxia that starts to make you nervous? I know it can vary based on someone's baseline clinical status, but is there any kind of overall number where you think, gosh, we better get on this quick? Uh, I think 90% is, yeah. is a good floor to keep in your mind. If you can keep somebody above 90, you're probably, probably not losing the battle very quickly. Okay. Um, uh, it's, it's a very good place to start. Uh, everybody should be kept above 90. Mm-hmm. Obviously, most young, healthy people should be running around uh, you know, in the free world, so to speak, in the 97, <laughs> 98, 99 range. Right. So if you can keep them below uh, or above that 90% threshold, that's a very good uh, place to start. Even the elderly that are on chronic oxygen, usually those are titrated to keep them above 90. Mm, okay. um, so um, I think it's a, it's, it, we want to... We Keep them with adequate oxygen, but not super oxygenated. Right. Because then we get the benefits without the, the potentially poor side effects of long-term high oxygen therapy. Gotcha. Finding so, that kind of sweet spot. Find that sweet spot. Keep them above 90. Spot. I like it. would be great. I like it. Now, do you have any tips or tricks in the setting of nasal cannula, mask, the usual, if that's not working? How much of a time do you have to kind of wiggle before you start stepping up your positive pressure or other methods of delivering oxygen? But you have to remember there's a little bit of a delay between mm-hmm. the amount of oxygen that you inhale and the and the reading on the set monitor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that delay runs, depending on, on what you read, anywhere from about 15 to 30 seconds or so. Okay. So I think that's a pretty fair uh, step-up point. If, if somebody comes in hypoxic, what I'm going to do is give them maximum oxygen first and mm-hmm. I'm going to okay. titrate it downward. So if they come in with an O2 set in the 70s, I'm going to put 100% oxygen on them. See if it brings them up. If it does bring them up to 100%, then you can start backing that down over the next five minutes or so. Okay. Uh, and put them in, go down to Venny mask, and then simple mask, and then nasal cannula, and so on down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to go from the top down, not from the bottom up. I don't so think. next time we're going to shift, I'll refrain from just like opening the oxygen canister in the room and let it just kind of float around <laughs> in there. That, that, that's not, that doesn't work that, that well. That may make you feel better, Dr. McKean. Oxygen.
get too high. In a catastrophic emergency, you're taking giant panic breaths. Suddenly you become euphoric, docile. You accept your fate. Well, it may not do <laughs> may not great do things much. for your okay. patient. Gotcha. <laughs> I, well, I like that approach. I mean, and for our listeners, if it's kind of your first time dealing with this of shortness of breath, to be able to start with bigger guns first and then get the oxygen saturation to a safe range before starting to peel back a little I bit. Think, I think so. And, and I think people are rightfully worried that they're going to suppress the respiratory drive of that of that COPD patient that's on chronic oxygen therapy. And mm-hmm. so they're sometimes hesitant to go to 100% face mask. But that's more of a long-term issue, that decreased respiratory drive long-term in the emergency department setting, meaning 30 minutes to an hour long-term, not, mm-hmm. not okay. over days long-term. But that 30 minutes to an hour you can use. Mm-hmm. Put them on 100% oxygen, get them up get their brain working properly, take a proper history, mm-hmm. and then you can start titrating it down while you're doing the history so you're actually standing there watching the numbers change and make right. sure that they stay above that magic 90% floor that you that want. That magical 90%. I like it. Now, you know, your maximum of a face mask at 100%, everything's not really kind of doing, and they're mm-hmm. still in that scary, more typical scary range that you'd be worried about. Obviously, if you're a listener who's early on in, in residency or a medical student, this is a time to recruit some help. Sure. I think to be able to get some other people involved to help mobilize resources because I think ultimately that's kind of where it's going to be warranted. I mean, yes. the, the end point of someone needs to be intubated right. uh, to control this uh, low oxygen saturation. Are there any situations where you've found that BiPAP or CPAP is kind of a bridge or just a trial is, is helpful? Or are there any where it's ultimately not oh, even worth trying? Absolutely. Uh, BiPAP is a relatively new uh, uh, entry into our treatment arsenal uh, over the last say 15 years or so is all that has really been a known entity uh, so much so that now the most of the squads out there are running around with a, rel- a very sort of basic version of a CPAP device mm-hmm. where that, that, they, that they can just attach a valve to one of their high pressure oxygen cylinders and administer some positive pressure ventilation um, that those those their systems are very rudimentary compared to the the big ventilators that we have in the emergency department. So if a patient comes in and they show any benefit whatsoever, even mm-hmm. if it's not you know, a full benefit from their device, you always can try them on our devices because they're, they're just much more advanced and able to help the patients. Gotcha. So I find CPAP and BiPAP uh, have been very helpful mm-hmm. at keeping pa- patients off the ventilator. We used to be very gung-ho and cavalier about intubating people, but mm-hmm. I'm sort of glad that that mindset has faded somewhat because mm-hmm. intubation is not the be-all and end-all. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, morbidity associated with it. There's a lot of discomfort right. associated with it. There's a lot of medications you have to give the pa- keep the patient sedated enough to be able to tolerate that type of intervention and so on. So I think you're always justified in trying some lesser intervention unless mm-hmm. your back is just truly up against the wall and the patient's an extremist. Right. And I and I agree with you in the sense that in my experience with it has been such a great thing, particularly with something that's uh, reversible in yes. that setting too. You know, yes. the, the CHF exacerbation yes. or asthma exacerbation where Medicines just need a little bit of time to, to help out. I think that's been such a great tool to have. Oh, that's an excellent point, especially with CHF. That's where I think you find it to be the, uh, the most benefit mm. because you can uh, get the mask on. Sometimes the patients half fight the mask, not realizing it's helping them. But it gives you that 30 minutes to 45 minutes to get the nitro drip set up, to get the Lasix a chance to get, do something for the mm-hmm. patient. And uh, it can be very gratifying to kind of walk through the room and, and a patient who is struggling 30 minutes prior now might still be struggling, but less so. And they can now talk to you a little bit and it can be very gratifying to treat those patients. Awesome. Well, Dr. Wright, thank you again. I mean, for taking this time to talk to us about shortness of breath. Do you have any last pieces of advice for our listeners out there about shortness of breath or life in general? (laughs) Let's stick with shortness of breath. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I think, uh, always talk to whoever brings the patient in, uh, always greet the patient in the room. Uh, I think, 
I've never been short of breath myself, except under for a lack of exercise, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but it's it's a very distressing feeling. So uh, so go after them quickly, but take that that twenty thirty seconds to watch their respiratory patterns before you actually engage the patient verbally. Mm-hmm. See what their lungs are doing. See what their chest wall is doing. See what kind of effort they're applying to their the respiratory pattern. It can give you a lot of information. Uh, then gather the information from the EMS providers, the family members, the patient themselves. Do a brief exam. Uh, and then start your diagnostic uh, and, and therapeutic interventions. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And everybody tune in next time for, I don't know what it's going to be. We'll have a mystery show next time. Thanks. <laughs>